Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am thrilled to welcome my guest, Carol Decker. Carol, of course, you will know from the legendary band Tapau. We spoke about the music industry, how she got started, and all sorts of things. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Carol, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for asking. Now, I'm uh, very excited to meet you, uh, particularly because I was such a big fan of Tapau. Still, I'm a big fan of Tapau and still listen to your records. You know, when I was young, my brother had all of your albums. I was a bit too young to have bought albums myself, but I listened to them more than he did, I think. Um, but you're, I mean, you're still going. You're still out there touring. You're still doing the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an incredible journey you've been on. Well, this is our 35th year. I cannot believe it's it. amazing. And prior to that, of course, I was a struggling muso. And, you know, from when I first wrote a song, it was about 1982 or something. So I can't believe I've been doing this this long because most musicians, most people who are in bands are sort of, it's like running away with the circus. You don't have a a plan for tomorrow. Yeah, (laughs) of course, of course. You know, and, and my whole thing, part of what attracted me to being in the music business or being in a band was to be unconventional, to not know where my life was going to take me. I yeah. couldn't stand the, the banality of, of a conventional life. I couldn't bear it. Still, my wish came true. Well, you definitely haven't had a conventional life. So did you always know that this is what you wanted to do, that you, this is what you wanted to do with your life from very early on? No, I, I didn't. And the reason being, it, it was never put to me as a career. So as a young child, I could always sing mm. and would sing along with the radio and I was a little bit precocious. So I grew up first seven years of my life in Liverpool. And my my grandma, Anna Decker, she had a fruit and veg shop. And I would like dance on the counter and sing and annoy people on the bus. And people would give me money to shut up and things right. like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was a talented, precocious little child and with a lot of musicality because my mum was a singer. My dad was an amazing pianist, you know. So it's in the family. It's in the, it's in the blood, yeah. yeah. And... Um, uh, and then we moved to, to Shropshire. My dad got a new job and I went through just ordinary school. And then I, I went to a girls' grammar school. Mm-hmm. And things like singing and art and stuff were just like hobbies, like accomplishments for a young lady. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, of course. But our headmistress was very like Margaret Thatcher. She was a scientist pushing us all. You, you're, you can do anything you want, anything you want. But she's very science, maths. So I was in the choir and I sang, but it didn't occur to me that it would be my job. And I always felt like I didn't fit in. Because I used to think, feel it very much as a luxury. Things yes. like drama, things like music. Exactly. I was in the drama club. You yeah. know, I was in the choir at school. But they were just kind of like little things to do on mm. the side, you know. Um, and then I really screwed up my A-levels, failed them miserably. So my plan to go to college and do journalism, it sort of fell by the wayside. Mm. And... And my parents moved from Shropshire to Warwickshire as I turned 18. So I didn't know what to do with myself, screwed up my exams. All my friends went to uni and left. Yes. My family left. And so I tried to stay on into 6-3 to retake, but I just felt lonely and depressed. So I went off to Holland and I was au pairing for a while. I had some family members out there. So I was um, hanging out there. And then I came back to Shropshire because I had a, an old friend who still lived there. I didn't go to Warwickshire because I didn't know it that well and she and I were on the dole now I've got to remember what it was called it might have been the YTS scheme and we got placed on the art team Mm. um, at the Ironbridge Gorge Museum and so I really loved all these fantastic artists they were like building the scale models of things you see in museums yeah 
and um, Melanie got to, to hand paint all the little characters who worked in the pig smelt or whatever. And I was the grunt. I had to hand carve all these little bricks and stick them on walls, you know. But I just loved the whole thing. And then Melanie and I said, let's, let's go to art school. So at age 22, I applied to go to art school with a really bad portfolio and got in. And whilst I was at art school, I began to meet a different kind of person. Sure, yeah. And um, More bohemian. Definitely more <laughs> bohemian, not the, not the uh, girl's grammar type. And um, again, the radio was always on in the studio when we were painting and stuff. And somebody said, you know, why don't you stop annoying us all and join a band? She said, seriously, I'm going to a party at the weekend. My mate Julian, he's a guitarist. They're looking for a singer. I'm going to come. So I went, got introduced to... This guy called Julian Ward, who just had a local band, auditions, and that was it. I was 22 years old, and I was in a band, and I was going to go for it. And it, I mean, yeah. it's just stories like that. You just think it, it could so easily have, have not happened. Yeah. If something else had happened, it would have been a completely different life. Yeah, but those, you know? those between 18 and 22, between the fluffing of the A-levels and going back to college... I literally did wander lonely as a cloud because yeah, yeah. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know where I fitted in. You know, I couldn't, I worked in shops. I was a lifeguard. I worked in bars. I just, I just couldn't settle, couldn't think of anything I wanted to do. And then finally it found me. Yes. You know? And then how do you go from that, from joining a band and presumably you're gigging all over the place? Yes. And do, yeah. How, how did it work? Because of course back then there's no internet. You can't mm. upload things on YouTube, try and get noticed that way. It, it seems almost impossible to break into that industry. Well, what you did was you built a local following. So that was just some basic um, uh, pubs mm. that had a function room and um, working men's clubs where I, we were often the unwelcome interruption in the bingo. Yeah. <laughs> and I love saying this because we lived in Shropshire, young farmers' balls. Oh, really? Yeah, I like them. <laughs> Good places to gig. Yeah, hairy, yeah. No, um, yeah, so we, they would literally hose the cow work off a shed and put a band in there. And, a bar. and we were often on a lorry trailer, which are very long but very narrow. So not very glam in, no, in the early days. No. <laughs> but we'd have to put hay bales behind the drummer because yeah. if he went for a big fill, they'd fall, fall off the lorry trailer because it was, it was so it had no depth to it. So you'd have to have hay bales to catch them and break their fall. That happened a couple of times. And so you just build up a local following. And then close to me in, in Shropshire was... Um, uh, Wolverhampton mm -hmm. was our nearest kind of biggest small city. So we went to Beacon Radio, or Bike and Radio, as they called it there. And they would do sessions, you know, like the Radio 1 sessions. Yeah. They'd have you in and do a session. And then BRMB in Birmingham was a really big station. And then we got some slots on Pebble Mill. Do you remember Pebble, Mill, Pebble Mill at 1? So we were building up this local following, but it was all very organic. And then back then... Um, Record companies would have regional offices and regional scouts. So you try and get the A&R guy from MCA Birmingham to come to your show. But they, they seldom, if ever, would. Yeah. So then we tried to start getting gigs in London, places like the Sir George Roby and stuff like that, old pubs, and, you know, even played the Marquee when it was still in Wardle Street. And you'd send your tapes off and send, you know, with your little biog and your photo and say, please come and see us. We're, we're appearing here, you know. And so that's how you did it, you know, and you were just in some van with no heater. Or I remember one time um, I had a clapped out um, VW Beetle and I think it was 12 volt battery or was it a 6 volt? It was the wrong kind of battery. It used to clap out all the time. And um, I couldn't drive. So my friend Jenny was driving and we got Ronnie, who was 
six two and a half, and our bass player Paul Jackson, who was six four, they sat in the back of this VW Beetle, and we threaded the guitars in on their lap. And they were like up to here with guitars all the way to London. <laughs> so we you'd make it work. We were very resourceful, very determined, but it took years because we weren't in Liverpool or Manchester or London yeah. we weren't on a scene so you just have to keep pushing and keep pushing and yeah. and, and make as many opportunities as you can and yeah. then a, a, the rare chance that it will work and it obviously did at some point was this from a demo tape or something yeah it took a long time you know and, and then you had the music rags so Melody Maker, Enemy yeah. and you'd scour the back um, to look for you know gigs or people to connect with and stuff like early LinkedIn if you like but how I finally got a break with some connected people was through utter naivety. So, you know, when you see a tour poster, it'll say, you know, uh, now it'll be Live Nation, usually. Always. Back then, it was Harvey Goldsmith Presents. So his name was always above. The promoter. Yeah, yeah. very famous. You know, Live Aid, he's a very famous mm. promoter. And uh, it would say, Harvey Goldsmith Presents, and it'd be the Rolling Stones or whoever, you know. And so this was... Um, I love the Pretenders. I just love them. He said, Harvey Goldsmith presents the Pretenders and it was their UK tour. And so I looked up his address and I sent off um, a demo tape and a picture. And um, dear Mr. Goldsmith, next time you're looking for an opening act for one of your big artists like the Pretenders, look no further than me, you know, kind of thing. What I didn't know was you had to have a record deal and they'd buy you onto a tour. Right, so Money is, changes hands, you know. So it's quite a ballsy thing to do to just go straight to him and say. It wasn't ballsy. I was completely naive. I didn't know that happened. When right. we when we were signed to Virgin and we were supporting Brian Adams, our label paid twenty five k to Brian Adams's management company. But I, I didn't know that that's how it worked. So Harvey Goldsmith was just starting a management arm to his product, you know, his um, promoting company, and that letter and tape ended up on the desk of the guy that he just said. We need to start managing some people. Right. So, and it worked out that way. And I got a manager. And were and you, were you t to power at this point? No. Um, Ronnie and I, Ron Rogers, who, who was my partner for 13 years, as well as um, my co-writer and stuff, we had a production deal with Kingsley Ward, who owns Rockfield Studios. It's one of the most famous residential studios in the world. Mm. Every big star's recorded there. And... Um, so, and we didn't know what to call ourselves. And Kingsley used to say, <laughs> things you think are a good idea. I'm talking big here. I'm talking America. We went, talking America. So we called ourselves that. Me, right. and, Rod me and Rod were called Talking America for about 18 months. Um, I'm, gla I'm glad you changed that yeah, name. Yeah, we I did. Yeah. <laughs> and then we did sort of two years with Kingsley and we all worked really hard trying to get a record deal. But Kingsley just couldn't get us away. Yeah. And in the end, he said, look, We've done as much as we can do. I need to move on to other things, but you can you can have your tapes, which at the time I took as a massive insult, like bye and yeah. here's your songs back, you know. But we were then able to go to go and get a publishing deal on those songs. So, we got a small. So you got had more freedom after. As a yeah, and and then that coincided with um, this guy called Chris Cook starting to manage us from Harvey Goldsmith's company. I see. So now we had London management and he started putting us in front of people. He was connected. He knew everybody. So that was the start of us moving forward. Yeah. I think today a lot of the time people assume these things are overnight successes, but sometimes they are today because people go on talent shows or, yeah. or something like that. This sounds like a very long slog. Oh, my God. I, by the time I got management, I was 26 years old, right? 
and they're starting to hook us up with photographers and stylists. And I remember this stylist coming up and getting right up close to me and going, there's a few fine lines coming. Um, she just drew to my attention that I was cl closer to 30 than than 20. Which in, in yeah. the pop industry is considered... Oh, I was geriatric. <laughs> Absolutely. I was Old Spice, you know. <laughs> That's so the sort funny. of Spice girl I was. And... Um, and my PR girl at the time um, started knocking, shaving years off my age whenever she discussed, I was discussed in the press. Oh. I never did that. But, I did wonder whether yeah. people did that as a matter yeah. of course. No, I, I, I never, ever lied about my age because I didn't know I had to. <laughs> but my PR person was telling everyone. I, I was always incredibly baby-faced. I used to get um, asked for ID in pubs till I was about 26. You know, I was always yes. very, very baby-faced. So... They thought it was easy to say, you know, oh, she's only 23 or something like that, you know. So then, and I know, I, I hate asking questions that are obvious, but and you must be asked a million times how the name T'Pau came about, because obviously it's a reference to Star Trek mm. and people will want to know whether you're a Trekkie or anything like that. And I'm sure you've answered this till you're sick of it, but I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, so um, fast forward. We've been out to America. We've recorded the album with Roy Thomas Baker. And here's the lovely synchronicity of Rockfield Studios because Roy produced Queen there. So Roy mm -hmm. produced Bo Rap there, you know. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah, and we go full circle. and We're working with Roy Thomas Baker. Can't believe it. It's amazing. Um, and we had the album in the can. We had a release date. And we didn't have a name for the band because we weren't really a band. It was me and Ronnie. So you'd recorded the whole album. This yeah. is Bridge of Spies. Yeah. And you recorded it and you'd... Didn't have a name for you. No, because it was me and Ronnie, um, two two local boys from Shropshire, Paul Jackson on bass, Michael Checkwood on keys, and then we'd been introduced to our now London management to Taj Wasgowski on guitar and Tim Burgess on drums. So we weren't an organic band. We didn't all go to school together, and you know, yeah, I see, yeah. We recruited very talented musicians that we were introduced to and made them into the the, the initial six piece lineup, mm -hmm. and so we. We used to meet in a pub in Soho and just argue over what the band should be called, you know. And finally, they're going like, the album's coming out next month. You've got to come up with a name. So I was back in the flat in Shrewsbury and um, the telly was just burbling in the corner. Mm. I wasn't really paying attention. And um, this is a to power, to power, to power. I kept hearing this word and I turned around and it was the original William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy TV, you know, um, Star Trek yes. series. And Tapau was just, um, she was a Vulcan high priestess and she sat on the um, Intergalactic Council and the episode was Amok Time. I've been informed of all of this. By <laughs> so not a fan yourself, you just overheard. I liked Star Trek, but I wasn't a Trekkie. Right. You know, but I just thought it was a great word. It was onomatopoeic. Yeah, that's I love, it. I love the way it was spelled, T-apostrophe-P-O-U, you know. It was very distinctive. Yeah, and so I just double-checked that I could steal it and I could legally yeah. so I said it's, it's to pound and I always say it's the one that they hated the least <laughs> so, but it, I mean it really works because yeah. like you say it's got that onomatopoeic it's, it's, yeah. it's like an exclamation it is yeah and it's it's, it's also intriguing and yeah. you know it's got all of those qualities about it definitely yeah but the funny thing was um, back then when I was out particularly out in America I was kind of stalked a bit by all these nerdy Trekkies out in America. Well, they probably thought you were a, a, a tribute band to Star Trek. I know, but the thing is, of course, fast forward 30 years later, 
And, um, you know, Comic-Con is so hip now. All the biggest stars in the world, if they've got some sci-fi related movie to promote or series, they all go. But back then I was like on the run from people <laughs> wearing pointy plastic. It's going, leave me alone. I'm a serious artist, you know. But uh, it's all changed now, isn't it? You know, all yeah. that. They love all that um, cosplay. My kids do. It's it. huge. But, you it's know, huge. I sell a leg now. To be chased by Star Trek fans, oh, you can make money out of it. I've heard you can. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've got a friend who had a small part in one of the Star Wars films, and he yeah. makes a fortune whenever he goes to those conferences, just signing, signing photographs and things. It's big. Yeah. So, but this must have been, you know, coming from the, the background you've come from, and then all of a sudden you're in America making an album with the producer from Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, yeah. it, like it must have been almost. I mean, how did that not go to your head? How do you not become a big um, diva? You know. I don't think I don't think I became a diva. I, I, I can put my hand on my heart and say that didn't happen. But um, and it, and I had lots and lots of pinch me moments. Yeah. Um, but you know what I mean, though, because a lot of people do. Yes. It, it gets it goes to their head in in a way that's not necessarily pleasant. It's yeah. Know. I I'd like to think that that didn't happen yeah. to me. I would say I very quickly adjusted to flying first class and <laughs> well, and all the good stuff it was really really nice you know so i enjoyed the spoils of my success mm. for sure but um and a couple of things did happen and, and i might sound like i'm you know just defending myself um but you know that kind of guys are tough but you you're a bitch if you stick up for yourself i had that happen a okay. couple of times where i just frankly turned around to somebody and said can you not talk to me like that yeah, yeah. and the next thing it's all scuttling around that but that's just you defending yourself. Yeah, anyway. and I, I years later met a guy who had gone on to become a very successful advertising um, filmmaker, mm. all the big campaigns, you know, and we're chatting and he said, you probably won't remember me. He said, I was the focus puller on the video for Valentine. And I went, oh, how nice. And he said, but we were all told not to talk to you, not to bother you, not to, you know. Yeah. And, you know, you hear these stories about other people, don't don't they? You know, you mustn't look her in the eye. You yeah. mustn't. And I don't know where these things get started because I've always been so in love with crew. I love the cameraman. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound so guys. I used to sit and chat for ages with all the... Because I just think they're all so clever and they, I'm just a little cherry on the top of the cake. You do you hear know? that about people, though. You wonder yeah. how much is just a rumour that someone else has started, that, mm. that this person's difficult or whatever. But Yeah. But... I mean, being because so, you'd had obviously the massive hit in America with Heart and Soul, mm. and that was absolutely huge. Yeah, um, it took a while to catch on in the UK, didn't it? That particular song, it, it got re-released. That's right. The first time it was released, it was it, it was a flop, and we thought it it was all over because record companies will drop you in a heartbeat. Oh, they're merciless, right? Yeah, <laughs> and RMD did not like Roy's mixes. Roy mixed in a particular way that put a lot of compression on the record. What and does I that mean? You, you compress the sound, so when it comes out of the radio, it sounds a certain way. You okay. know, so it's um, I'm probably not explaining it very well because I'm not I'm not a technician, but I I know how they do it. Yeah. And other things happen as well, particularly with vinyl, when you master an album, there's more different frequencies added, taken out, and compressions and stuff. But um, uh, yeah. So David Betteridge, RMD, didn't like Roy's mixes, and when I put the album on the vinyl album, as was then. I, I was fiddling with all the EQs on my stereo going, this sounds kind of, it's almost sort of distorted. Right. So I, I knew what 
what David meant, but when you heard it on the radio, particularly MOR radio in America, yes. oh my God, it flew, it popped out of the speaker. So Roy knew what he was doing. And that's what made it big. Out yeah. There, it? And yeah. it still sounds amazing now. If you, It still sounds really relevant production, not particularly on Heart and Soul when you hear it. So big flop. David Betty went, see, I told you those mixes, they're all wrong. And we're like, no. And I'm just like almost suicidal because my big break coming so late in my 20s and I'm yeah. thinking they're going to dump me, you know. And, and did you honestly think that was it after I'm that? terrified. Yeah, I was terrified. And um, then it's Pepe Jeans, a really cool jeans company, decided to use it for the cinema commercial campaign. Mm -hmm. And that was very cool. And then um, it started to climb up the American charts. So me and Ron were flown straight out to do radio promo, you know, a junket of, it's like, there's thousands of radio stations in America, thousands and thousands. Yeah. And so we were just um, talking like this, you know, to different um, DJs and stuff. And uh, and then the next thing, the band come out and then we're on tour and it's flying up the charts and it, it went to number four and it stayed on the chart for months. I mean, and that's massive. It's really. huge. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely massive. If you have a big hit in the States, it sort yeah. of jettisons you around the world. And the other thing that was of enormous help was the very new MTV. Yes. So that... Again, and you had the video, presumably. Yeah, the video. Time. And it was called like rotations, light, medium, and heavy rotation. We were on heavy rotation. We were on like every five minutes. Every hotel we stayed in, Heart yes. and Soul came on every five minutes, you know. And of course, MTV helped because you could now, if other countries around the world subscribed to MTV and took MTV, yeah. you didn't physically have to be there on tour promoting your song all the time. Yes. You know, people got to see what you looked like via MTV. And did you always know, so you've recorded the album, do you, do you know which ones are going to be the big singles or are going to be the big hits or is it a bit more arbitrary than that? Um, I usually have the ones that I like. I don't know if, I've, you know, if I'm right or I'm wrong because sometimes the record company were right and they were wrong. Um, and they chose it, did they? Or the well, it was usually a, a, you know, a meeting around a table. But the one I knew... And this is what I got such a shock when Heart and Soul first flopped was I thought Heart and Soul was magnificent. I mean, the thing about Heart and Soul is it's, if you hear it now, you think, well, that's an obvious classic yeah. because it's it's not just really catchy and powerful, but it's it's kind of innovative with the kind of it feels like there's a dueling between the spoken voice and the sung yeah. voice. And that's a, which you then did again on Island. Yeah. And I really like that, I like that. that technique. That's I like really using vocals as percussion. So fill in the right. gaps, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. you know, not just the harmonies and stuff like that. So, um um, yeah, so Heart and Soul, thank God, thank you, America. You know, it... Um, Your instincts were right. It came yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but they never liked China. That never caught on in America? They didn't even release it. That's amazing, isn't it? didn't like it, no. Um, so, yeah, so we had a few um, we picked. Um, Ronnie and I were very good at balance, so there was Valentine. Valentine got us our deal. Right. Every time we met with record company people or um, different management, they'd go that's the song I want to hear more like that right more of that quality it was always Valentine and then we wrote I Will Be With You which was a, another big ballad hit for us and stuff you know so we were good at the kind of the pulling on the heartstring type yes. songs you know and then of course China In Your Hand was was absolutely huge here of course and that would be that would have been the first number one the, the number one you had wasn't it the, the... yeah and we didn't that didn't get us a deal. China in Your Hand did not exist when we got our recording deal. We were out in um, Wisconsin outside Chicago. One song wasn't working. We were wasting time and money in the studio. And Roy said, do you have any other songs? 
And I literally had a cassette with the first draft of China. Ron, Ron had done the piano and I'd done the story yes. about um, Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, which was kind of an odd, <laughs> odd thing, but it, it, it took me somehow. And uh, gave Roy the, the cassette and he went, that is a great song. So, so it was in its early stages. It was a piano and a voice. And um, I know because you, you come to see us in concert that... China can work with a piano and a vocalist or an yes. acoustic guitar or a vocalist, or it can work with a 70-piece orchestra, which I've done it with the BBC Concert Orchestra. Yeah. It's one of those songs, you know, it can just fly on any level. But again, the genius that is Roy Thomas Baker, he just heard, that's why it's so massive, you know, yes. such a big song. He heard, he, that's how he hears things, you know. So he could hear what it could become yeah. from the basic demo. Yes. So yeah. is that your normal process of songwriting, is that you come up with a sort of... A, you know a basic version of it and then the rest of Ronnie comes in and yeah I mean it, it, it'll be like Heart and Soul was born out of a new toy so we had this new keyboard my dad lent us some money for a keyboard and um was it JX3P might have and uh, it had a thing called a sequencer in it so a sequencer you is, was very rudimental yes. you know well it would be rudimental now but back then it was like cutting edge technology so you you play a riff you pick some notes and then the keyboard keeps playing it. So, so that's why you get that repeated yeah, bass. Yeah, so Ron was mucking around going, boom, 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 Put that into the sequence. So that kept playing. And then, you know, he got his guitar and he was doing that. And then I got on the, the other keyboard and was going, so you just start mucking about. So Heart and Soul was born out of a new toy. Right. Um, China in Your Hand. I just, I'd seen this documentary about Mary Shelley writing the, the Book of Frankenstein. Mm. And, um, without wishing to sound like an expert on it, because I'm not, but the, the, the tenet of the programme was that at age 19, she wrote this pulp fiction hit and her husband, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, all yeah. their, their sort of Fitzrovia um, intellectuals, they're all super jealous. They're all sort of falling out, arguing, <laughs> and it caused a lot of problems. And then, of course, you know, the story of Frankenstein is really quite sad when, when, yeah. where Dr. Frankenstein acts as God and c creates, you know, his own his own being. So I thought it was like a wheels within a wheels, a story within a story, sort of be careful what you wish for. Cause so that really started with the lyrics then? You, it, mm. it started with the, the concept? Concept, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Um, so that was a story. And um, Heart and Soul was a new toy. Um, other songs I've written are just observations about other people mm. um, and their life. You know, I just, just, I just observe people and just pick up on you know what how, how would I feel if I was in her shoes or his shoes yeah. as that happened you know I even wrote um arms of love is about the the children that were murdered on the moors by Myra Hendley yeah you know so that never occurred to me that's the first album on rage isn't it and the first track yeah first track yeah first track sorry yeah because so, I, I just you know when they wouldn't tell the parents where the bodies were we'll bring you back it's funny isn't it so just anything yeah. can inspire you yeah. And, and it yeah. becomes musicalised. It becomes. And Bridget Spies, Anatoly Sharansky, you know, the, the spy exchange. And no, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks did not get in touch when they brought <laughs> the movie out. So this is all happening to you, and it's, 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 you know, it's a very sort of intense few years, it must have been. Yeah. But, but, you know, and I can't sort of imagine what it must be like to be just so known, so recognisable wherever you go. And, and of course, it had happened so suddenly. Yes. Uh, you know, how, how did that feel to be in the midst of that kind of it level was of fame? A, it was a bit like holding a tiger by the tail, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it was a little bit before all the paparazzi really took off. But I did have my share of photographers hiding behind the parked cars in my street 
Yeah. Did no. you never feel like just you wanted to tell yeah, me where going, to go? Yeah, because I was still going down to the corner shop to get a yeah. pint of milk in the paper without any makeup on in a tracksuit. You of course. Know? And yeah. then like all that was going on. And um, I did have a short period of time where we had a decoy, somebody in a red wig in a car. Really? Like, yeah. <laughs> Because I couldn't get out of the Hammersmith Odeon. It was such a crap. So they, they had a de- decoy car in one of our roadies. Yeah. So that was quite intense. And if that had gone on for the rest of my life, like some people stay super famous forever and always have to be on their guard, don't they? I, I think it must be exhausting. The, the, brief in, the brief experience I had with it, I was like, I've arrived. <laughs> but even in that moment, were you aware that, you know, that, that won't be forever because the music industry is always so fickle. I tried not, it turned out it wouldn't be forever, you're quite right, but I tried not to think about it because yeah. I loved it so much. I, I've i never hidden the fact that, um, you know, like most people, I've had my own share of insecurities and, and emotional upsets like everybody else. Mm. And, um, and like a lot of people, I was bullied at school, you know, by pupils and one horrible teacher was vile to me. So I felt incredibly validated by becoming that successful yeah, and looking yeah. straight down the camera at top of the pops and going, are oh, you yeah, looking at me yeah. now? You know, the, the, the people who said, oh, you never make it or you're useless. Or yeah. one teacher used to say, if you cannot answer this question, you do not deserve a place in this school. I mean, teachers used to be like that. Though. Yeah. They, they, they didn't used to. Throw the rope, throw the chalk, the, the blackboard thing at the back of your head and They'd stop. never be. I, <laughs> I had one teacher who gave an assembly telling everyone they had to lower their aspirations. Oh, I forgot. Because say. she'd been looking through over our university applications saying, you're never going to get in. Just Yeah. They wouldn't do that these days. You'd never get that. Oh, no, no. You'd have but, a safe space, darling. Oh, of course. Consider your feelings. But how um, about, you must be so validated by it. I mean, Top was. of the Pops in particular, because that was so big. It's an institution, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and, a, and a, a unique show in that every age group in your family could and did watch it yeah, together. Yeah, watched it, yeah. kids, grandma and granddad, you know. Yeah. So, um, no, I, 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 I could, I, my cheeks ached. I smiled so much yeah. for my first Top of the Pops. You know, I really couldn't stop grinning. But even with the, you know, the nature of the music industry and that you, you, you can't stay at that peak forever, you've achieved that. You know, that's something that so few people achieve that. It, and- it, it took me a while to come to that conclusion because obviously when the, the the big heady days were over and they were by about 91 mm. I felt like I'd had the sack I felt like I'd been fired you know like um I wasn't good enough anymore I, I did definitely struggle with it right which always makes me really worry about those poor kids who have that intense experience on X Factor where they're sending a car to pick you up every Saturday on primetime TV you know everybody's waving at you screaming your name and then you go out of the competition and you're just working back at the petrol station or yeah. something. I get it. I get that anguish. And, uh, and you know, nobody likes to lose their position that they've worked hard for. But the way I reconciled it, a bit like what you're saying, is if you win a gold medal at the Olympics, if you don't win it next time, it doesn't mean you didn't win it. Right. So I learned to be proud of myself and understand that I have survived in a very difficult and competitive industry but it was it was a bit shaky for a while and that was around the time of the third uh, the promise which which still sold very well didn't it it did top 10 gold album so I mean (laughs) not too shabby (laughs) we got dumped by Virgin because things were going that way but that happens to a lot of artists Mm. you know they have a the difficult third album whatever it is and 
And, you know, some record companies stuck with their artists and let them climb back up and encourage them. But we were just dumped. Some of the artists that flourish the most, it's almost like they have an, an album or two that doesn't really catch on. I think Kate Bush had that. Kate Bush had yeah. an album that just sunk. I, I can't remember which one it was. But they persisted. They believed in her. Yeah. And they yeah. just said, look, carry on. And then the next one, they then she did Running Up That Hill. And it's like, OK. Yeah. You, you know, so in a sense... And she was very young, don't forget, when she got signed, wasn't she? So they, yes. they saw her, they wanted her to mature. And fantastic. That's how it should be. You should be nurtured and encouraged. But it's not really like that, is it, always? Mm. And a lot of, I mean, with my limited knowledge of the music industry, mm. it does feel a bit like, you know, they just drop you if they think they're not making money at the moment. There's no sense no. of what could happen in the yeah. future where you could develop, you know. Mm. I mean, and admittedly, you know, um, the album sales were going down because we, Bridges Spies was quadruple platinum. Rage was platinum, still a platinum album. Yeah, so still huge. Yeah, and The Promise was um, gold. So that was a, it was quite a drop. But right. The Promise has since gone on to be referred to as like a very underrated album because it's a great album. We've moved producers by then to Andy Richardson, who um, he got an Oscar for mixing the soundtrack to Slumdog Millionaire. You know, the guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, it's a great yeah, yeah. sounding album. But something, I don't know. Like, I don't know why China in Your Hand went to number one for five weeks. I don't know why people fell out of love with us. I don't know. It's, it is. I think, is there yeah. something just to do with fashion fickleness? I mean, because when I was watching your mm. concert the other week, it just, and you're doing the songs in various, or, you know, in a random order almost. Yeah. They're consistently strong, like all the way through. It's not like the promise wasn't as good as it, it was just as good no, as the other albums yeah we write ronnie and i write really catchy songs we're very sort of please don't bore us get to the chorus yeah, you know yeah. that's, we, that's, that's what, what i mean write, so, it, yeah. so it's just it's almost just it just happens it's not to do yeah. with it you know and that must be quite difficult to to sort of deal with it, yeah it is it can be artistically frustrating yeah you know to uh think well i thought that's a really really good song and nobody got it at all yeah. you know and then, of course, these days, you know, um, a lot of my work is live. Yes. Which is great because, you know, we still, like a lot of 80s artists, people seem to really enjoy coming to, to see the original artists. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sing the soundtrack to their youth type stuff. You Absolutely, know? yeah. Uh, so that's great. But it is hard to get traction on new music. It, it, it is. You know, we put out a great download single in um, May 2020 called Be Wonderful which we were all under lockdown then. So we filmed yeah. it in the garden um, with the chickens and the dog and my kids who've done um, uh, media training. They can, the, you know, they're cameramen and they can edit and stuff like that. Mm. Um, they, they filmed the video for me. That was great fun. Right. And loads of people loved it, but can't get it played on the radio. But there's still the satisfaction of being a creative person. No, in, I really enjoy your... that. I do. I really, really do. Um, but it is hard. You know, the 80s, 80s formatted stations will only play your old stuff right and there's no way that radio one or two are going to play my new stuff anymore because i'm you know they're called as heritage artists now like some old building well you were saying when you were <laughs> nearly 30 that you were feeling old within <laughs> the industry you know? yeah, they were making i didn't feel old that somebody they, said they were telling you, you yeah were. <laughs> okay right well, i'm old apparently you know um yeah, so that is hard. It's it's it is it's hard. But you know, when you've got a body of work like that, you know, you will always be able to, to play. You've always got fans. You've always got yes. people who are going to follow you, and yeah, you know, know. Yeah, and you still get to play different types of venues. I mean, I, yeah. I saw you in a, a relatively small venue, mm -hmm. but then you'll be playing a massive uh, arena still with the eighties uh, shows and stuff. You know, you, yeah, huge festivals. Do yeah. you adapt? The, I mean, you have to, I suppose, adapt the songs to a degree, but. There's something about Tapao songs that are, they lend themselves to those big rooms. They the, are. The, you know, yeah. some of the more epic sounding. They are shock and awe. Because, you know, yeah. when, when we were at um, 
that little venue and I went this this is a good night Wembley song which was walk on air yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that's like, it. and the room was about as big as this yeah. can I Wembley <laughs> <laughs> I always write like I'm gonna be at Wembley you know um yeah I mean the the, the festivals are amazing yeah. and um and also uh, like at the end of this month I'm going on to a cruise which right. is fun yeah um, with ABC, is that ABC, Tony Hadley, Toya, Altered Images, Go West and me. That's, that's fun. And that's a great, we have a great house band. Yeah. And I usually take along James, my lead guitarist and backing vocalist. He's my wingman. Yeah. And he sort of personalizes the house band setup yeah. for me. And he's sort of my unofficial uh, MD as well. And that's good fun. And then uh, we did, a couple of years ago, we did the Songs and Stories tour, which we did completely acoustically, just four of us. And we went around all little, um, there's quite a few art centres and chapels that have been repurposed to be acoustic gigs. Oh, really? So, yeah, so I love that. I love to do acoustic stuff. I like shock and awe festivals. A um, couple of years ago, we got flown out to Bali. Yeah. And they put on this big 80s concert on the, the, the headland. And the cruise arrives with all the, the, the punters who were on their 80s cruise. And they come up and they have a, a big supper. And mm. there was Medjub, Linda Carlisle, me, a handful of others. And it was just, I'm still having the most amazing experiences. And Do you all know each other then, all the artists from that era? We do now. I didn't then because... Um, a lot of the people I know were the earlier part of the decade to me. So yes. you weren't bumping into each other in um, Top of the Pops. Right. You know, and also things were different. They were all really competitive. Of course. Of course. I was, I'd trip you up if I saw you in the corridor <laughs> and kiss you. you know? But now we've all been doing um, these 80s sort of tours and festivals since the early noughties. So 2001, I did my first arena tour with yeah. Paul Young, Kim Wilde, Go West, me and China Crisis. And that's when we became friends backstage. Yeah, getting to know, know them. Yeah. And do you still really enjoy Has there ever been a period where you're like, I don't really want to perform live anymore? Or, or is the enthusiasm still the same? It's coming back. The funny thing about the last two years with lockdown is, if anybody follows me on Twitter, I've sort of been, you know, my, um, I've been railing against the machine and being told what to do. And yeah. Uh, my my defiance syndrome was off the scale and I probably did nothing but give myself an ulcer because there wasn't anything I could do about it. Yeah. So having been outraged at what was done to us with lockdown, I found um, I've been quite anxious coming back to work. Oh, really? Not through any fear of viruses, but thinking, can I do this anymore? Just because it's been that yeah. long. And I've spoken it? to quite a few colleagues and friends, um, you know, some artists and others are like... Um, technicians tour managers and they're going i used to spin about five plates at the same time now i'm going just double check my email you know when you learn to read when you're little with your finger under the yeah. word i'm going it's my diary <laughs> i'm here on this day you know and i feel quite i felt quite anxious about getting back into it like yeah. i've got I've been off the horse for too long almost but uh, it's getting easier you know? yeah and i mean the, the style of the band and everything about it it's, it's, it's a lot of drama a lot, it's, it's all about the, the, the bigness of it and the, yeah. the, the theatricality of it. Yes. Um, but is that you don't always do that. I mean, you're saying some of your gigs can be smaller ones where yeah. you do the more acoustic. Do you have a preference for the, which type of show you do? Depends what mood I'm in. Right. I, if I'm honest, I'm probably more shock and awe, big, yeah. big stage girl, you yeah. know. So, yeah. um, like, one of the things that's coming back online, thank God, having been cancelled for the last two years, is called a, a Night of the Proms, and it's in Europe. And okay. um, 
it, people can look it up on YouTube. All of my, lots of my peers and some of the biggest stars in the world have done it. So there's an orchestra, rock band, and a choir. Yeah. And so you. Just, so this is going to be big. This is massive. So yeah. you jump on the stage and you sing your hits with that backing you. Yeah. And I've done eighties classical here in the UK. Um, yeah, we've got one in this year. No, sorry, last year. Um, which was really difficult with everything that was going on. And again, massive, that's the Opera North Orchestra, which is huge, mm-hmm. Millennium Square in Leeds. And then we also did the London Coliseum with the B- BBC Concert Orchestra. Yeah. So to have China, can you imagine all the string sounds on China in your hand? Because yeah. they were they were synthesised string sounds. Proper orchestra, proper violins, cellos. I think that's what it needs. Tintity. That's, that's, I was just, I, oh, the hairs on the back of my neck were yeah. standing up when I was singing with that orchestra it was incredible I mean that's the advantage of writing big songs like that yeah songs that lend themselves to that yeah were those was was that the style of music that you were always into when you were younger or was was this what what kind of influences did you have I guess I did like big because like my dad he loved all the big voices so he loved Barbara Streisand Shirley Bassey Ella Fitzgerald yeah um uh, Dinah Washington, that you know, and then he he was big into his classical music. So right. I think he used to do <laughs> on a Sunday if he'd had a few pints after lunch was play Tchaikovsky's eighteen twelve or overture. Yes, really loud, so loud once that some of the horse brasses fell off the wall, and I used to feel really sorry for our <laughs> semi-detached neighbours because he'd be drunk and conducting, you know, it's like that. So I so he his... liked the drama as well, like. <laughs> drama queen. My dad yeah. is a drama queen. So I, I got this high drama from him. Mm. And I always thought um, a good voice was a big voice. Yeah. A Barbara Streisand voice, a big range, you know. Um, and then my mom was more of kind of um, what was going on at the time was the Stones or the Beatles or the, the, you know, what was in the chart. She's more kind of contemporary. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think probably... Yeah, and I've got a good ear for melody and what's catchy, but I, de- I definitely got high drama from my from my dad for sure. Yeah, and and so that and that fed into your music, the style of songwriting, I mm. suppose, the way that you ended up. But you weren't sort of a trained musician in terms of you, could you read music? Could you no, do anything like that? No, I, I had piano lessons because my dad was, was an amazing pianist. So he was a pianist, yeah, and yeah. he could he could play. He'd be playing the music to the left-hand page and humming the melody on the right-hand page, yeah. which always sounded really weird, but that's how good at reading music he was. Yeah. And it used to frustrate him that I couldn't. So I went to piano lessons for a couple of years. And I just found it really difficult. Now, I don't know if this is a myth, but apparently if you're good at reading music, you're usually good at maths. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. No, I can't. I can't do maths. Never could. My dad was really clever. He was good with figures. And... I just couldn't. I found it a real struggle to process it. Yeah. But I can play very well by ear. Right. I don't play so much anymore. It doesn't seem to interest me as much. But I could hear something on the radio and I could figure it out. So I have really good relative pitch. So I can figure out where all. And that's just intuitive. Yeah. That just came intuitively. Yeah. And I could al- I could always um, harmonise with a song in a second. Right. You know, I- I'd hear half the verse and I'd- I just know where the notes are and I feel it and I do it and I'm very accurate. So I am very musical, but I can't, I'm not a really good player. Yeah, I see. So all the early to power demos, it's usually me on the keyboard. Yeah. Just blocking out the chords, blocking out the melody, you know, mm. and then I would hand it over to Michael, who was yeah. quite the virtuoso. I think it is just instinct. Either you, yeah. like, I mean, I can't sing at all. And so I wouldn't be able to, but the fact that you can automatically harmonise 
you just know where where the where it yeah, goes. Yeah, I do, I do. Um, but I, yeah, it frustrates me. I can't read music, and now I'm just too impatient to sit down and see if I can try it again. I yeah, don't have the attention span, you know. We well, don't need to. You can write it yeah. without. Uh, are there any uh, what are there any shows in particular that stick in your memory as being sort of things you love the most or sort of high points? Oh, okay. So we did a Prince's Trust rock gala at the Albert Hall. I think it's 1988, and somebody posted it. Um, on YouTube recently and you know what I don't think I took in who I was on stage with now I can look at it yeah who was there oh Eric Clapton um was George Harrison there and then um Steve Ferrone on drums who's who's drum for Tom Petty oh Tom for like 20 years yeah all the biggest backing vocalists of the day Tessa Niles who just you couldn't switch on the telly without Tessa's back behind the biggest artists of the time and I still can't lay my tongue to all their names now, but I was just watching it the other day and think, I don't think you realise who you're on stage with, Carol. You know, it's absolutely incredible. When was that? What sort of era? 88, I think. Right, okay, was. so just after the first album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you you know, when you're hot to trot, you get invited to all these things yeah, to be part yeah. of all these big events, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, we opened the Brits at the Albert Hall and I, it was terrifying because there's some kind of staircase and I had to walk down it starting China in your hand. Oh, well, that's very dramatic. Yeah, and, and of course, everybody was in the boxes. And I remember looking up and seeing all of you two were in one of the boxes and they, I could see them, you know, <laughs> and I was just like, no pressure, you know, kind of thing. And uh, it was great, you know, we got a standing ovation. It was fantastic. Um, oh, gosh, there's so many that we did. Um, opening for Brian Adams was an enormous treat. He's, he's such a, a big superstar. And, um, that was a tour. That was a tour across Europe. Um, that was just incredible. Yeah. To, to how did you get chosen for that? Because this presumably before China and your hand. Had, um, uh, no, it was uh, we just released Heart and Soul because okay. we went to number one while we were on tour with Brian. Okay. Which uh, he was incredibly gracious about it, but that's not what you want from your. You own don't. Act. You don't want the first act to be the hottest Clips. thing at the moment. I know. Yeah. You want them to add to the ticket to add to the evening. Yeah, you know? yeah. He was very gracious about it. And it was going to number one as we went across it. It was going to number one in all the different countries, which was amazing. But Brian, I used to just stay by the monitor desk to the side of the stage and just watch him work. He had, you know, yeah, he's brilliant. A fantastic performer. So that was a huge privilege to, to, to be his opening act. Particularly at that time. I mean, I, I know a comic recently told me that he was doing support for a famous comic. And this famous comic said to him, can you cut out those jokes? They're too good. And I don't want you to be too good if you're the if you're the opening act. Yeah, it doesn't look good when I'm on. I I kind of get it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, oh, and another one. Now this is in Holland, so this is '88. So it was the the European Cup football. Yes. Now, now, where was I? It was Rotterdam, I think. Might have been the Ahoy. Mm. And so for the for the encore, which was China, because we yeah. went to number one in Holland. They loved us in Holland. I quickly changed into the uh, Dutch football strip. <laughs> Came on in all this orange, you know, and then took, well, it was a festival that had no roof, but the metaphorical roof came off the place. Yeah. That was fantastic. So, oh, no, we've just done some lovely, lovely things. Yeah. And did the band always get on or were there ever issues within? We did get on, like most bands. If you if you interview a lot of bands, they'll tell you the same story. We started out as the four, five, six, seven musketeers, you yeah. know, spent more time with each other than we did with our families. And then, especially when you get successful, um, the dynamic changes. So Ronnie and I had written 
all the songs for the first two albums. Mm. They were written before we met them. Yeah, so like you were saying, they they came on after. They and, were signed to us on a production deal, so they were our hired musicians. So did you consider them part of the band, though? Or oh, they? I did very much. I did very much, um, but I was very clear they weren't getting any of my publishing. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. And when we wrote The Promise, we co-wrote that with them, and it was just a six-way split, and that was fine. But what happened was two massive albums. Um, firstly, may I say, they were on excellent salaries. Okay, so that's on the record. Put your tiny violin away. Yeah. But of course, Ronnie and I wrote all the songs, so they saw a huge difference in what we were doing and where they were. But yes. they weren't like, no one had their, I didn't have my foot on their throat. They were not oppressed, yeah. abused musicians by any stretch of the imagination. But it caused a schism because all of a sudden, Ron and I had a ton of money come down the pipeline. And, mm. and well, I, so much of it goes to the writers, doesn't it? Yes. I, which I, I, I've only sort of heard. Yes. So that's the way it goes. Yeah, but I, n nobody but Ronnie and I were in that damp flat writing songs except me and Ron. Well, exactly. So it was exactly. Clear. There wasn't any kind of grey area of, well, you know, I, I I was there, I put the bass down, and I think I influenced. The, mm. It just didn't happen. We did everything. Ronnie played everything. We record, you know, we had home recording unit and all our demos were basic four-track demos of all the songs. We And we wrote them and we played on them. So It's just that when there's so many stories of yeah. creative people, when they end up working together, even in comedy, you know, when there's a double act yeah. and then they end up never talking ever again because yeah. there's something about... You end up, like you say, you're not seeing a family, you're living in each other's pocket. Yeah. But in your case, because you were in a relationship as well with the, the other writer. Yeah, well, Ronnie and I, we were once on the road for 17 months, pretty much. So the band, they were all married and the girls would fly out to meet us at certain points yeah. where we had a gap. They all went on to get divorced. And um, the wives used to say to me, you know, tour monster came home. Yeah, so I, yeah. I remember I got home once and I had the house in North London and it was over three stories. <laughs> and uh, we had someone looking after the house for us and he was very funny. So when I opened the front door, my bedroom, there was a sign going dressing room. And then the living room had front of house yeah. and the kitchen was catering. He put all these signs around the house. So I knew what I was doing, you know. Because so, it's such a different world. Yeah. Right? So Ronnie and I were together all the time. Yeah. It was when the band stopped working and we came off the road that Ronnie and I hit a brick wall in our personal relationship. Yeah. But it was the other way around for the boys. They were separated from their wives. And that, you know, I mean, it was so intense that that caused their relationships to, to fail, unfortunately. But um, I wouldn't change it for the world. But there's a couple of members. There's one member of the band I haven't really spoken to since because um, he would never come to you with what, what he wanted to talk about. He would just gnaw away at the foundations of the band. You'd prop up the bar. Someone would be drunk. You'd be going, you know, she's just... No, 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 no. I can't stand that sort of thing. No. So I um, haven't really spoken to him since. The others, we've gone back to being good friends. And I even got an apology out of one of them for the way that they conducted themselves towards the end of the, the band. It's all in my book, Heart and Soul. A few copies left. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Because it's not a normal life, is it? Really? No, it's not. It's... No. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure they think uh, they might have stories to tell about me that um, simply won't be true. No, of course. You that, you know? Yeah, but no one's going to read their book, yeah, are no, they? No, so no, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is there also the issue that, you know, you're the figurehead of the band, mm. always. You know, if I think about when people think of Tapao, they think of you. And so, you know, there's always going to be, there must be some sort of ego clashes within a, a group like that. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I it's, Some of it was just like um, practical stuff. Um, so 
monitoring wasn't as good back then when we first started. So you, we would, I would always, in any band I was ever in, have huge arguments with the lead guitarist who would mm. want their amp so loud yeah. that it was only taking out your right eardrum or something. Yeah. You know? So the arguments, lead singers and lead guitarists would often clash. Really? Yeah. That was quite... Quite a, and what about in the writing? Has there ever created differences where one person has to compromise or anything like that? Not then, but latterly, yes. Ronnie's getting super grumpy. Really? Oh, God, yeah. He's like a different... <laughs> he, he won't mind you saying this, right? He used to do exactly what I told him. <laughs> he does That's anymore. what you need. You need You need to be tyrannical. Yeah, right? yeah. No, Ron can really stick his stick his heels in these days. Or he used to be a bit more flexible um, and I'd get my own way a bit more. Um, is he right though when he's like, he is sometimes like, okay, okay he is you know but i and i've learned to let him run with one of his ideas live with it listen yeah. to it and then go actually it's fine yeah you know i didn't need to kind of win that one i'll win the next one yeah exactly just see it in the long-term yeah. strategy it's not enough that i win you must lose of course yes. of course do you have any favorites in terms of your songs and the things that you've, or the, or the ones that you like to play live the most, do you have anything like that? Heart and Soul, I love. Mm. China in your hand, because like I, I was just on stage on Saturday at Queen's Hall in Nuneaton, and you barely have to sing it; they sing it for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. But I love. Um, we perform the original demo version of "Thank You for Goodbye." So the, the version that's on Bridge of Spies, I don't personally like. Mm -hmm. uh, we completely changed the song. Roy wanted to totally rework it. I don't like it. I love the punchy demo version. That's the one that we perform. Another one I love is Road to Our Dream, um, which I just think is beautiful. Walk mm -hmm. on Air, I think, is is absolutely beautiful. The Promise is great fun. That gets everybody going. Yeah. You know, so I just, it's, yeah, I, there's a lot of our songs that I really love. And I was listening the other day to some old B-sides as well that I might bring back into the set. Oh, yeah. And is it almost like you hadn't thought of those for a while? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, you've, you've released a, a big collection, haven't you? A, um, a three CD collection. 56 tracks, yeah. It's called yeah. Essential to Peril. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a big back catalogue there. Yeah, you know, Because people think, oh, there's only three albums, but there's, there's more. You've had a, an album recently as well. Uh, oh. Um, in 2015, I think you had a... Yeah, then, gosh... Yeah, that puts terrible, isn't it? Pleasure <laughs> and pain. Pleasure and pain. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what? That was wonderfully reviewed because in the past I've had a good slagging of the the music press. They just thought we were naff, didn't like us. I couldn't do what. Even at the height of the success, yeah. I went from being I was on the cover of Kerrang, Smash Hits, Yeah, Q, Melody Maker. We were so wide ranging. You know, we had fans who loved Sex Talk and Monkey House, who were the the more metal fans, and then through all the, you know, and then we, we sort of marketed through that going live Phil Schofield yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to the little kids. Um, and uh, I quickly went from being, oh, my God, they're amazing, to like, oh, they're just naff, you know, after Bridge of Spies, and that lasted for a long, long time. And then um, when Pleasure and Pain came out, it got actually nicely reviewed by mainstream um Music journalists, right. because probably all the ones that used to slag me are probably all dead now. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I finally got the reviews of my dreams. Yeah. But of course, you can't shift the albums anymore. You know, it's so hard to sell them. Did you not? Did those criticisms early on bother you at all? Because I, like, I, yeah. everyone has a different response. I know some people who never read their reviews. You know, they just I absolutely. Stopped. Yeah. Is that, that the best way to deal with it? Yeah, I, I was. Um, I was even entrapped by one journalist who was 
a smiling assassin right. for a big um, uh, music paper. And she didn't come to the show and um, she'd gone down with a stomach bug. So, you know, we sort of made sure that the hotel doctor went to see her and my tour manager went to see if she's okay, can we get you anything? And the opening line of her article was, thank God I was able to fake dysentery so I didn't actually wow. have to go. So they flew her out to Vienna to interview me. And then um, she basically slagged me off and then admitted in her article that, um, you know, I faked a stomach bug. So That's proper it, gutter press stuff. That's but... horrible, yeah. And uh, I was also set up really bad. You know Paul Morley? I don't, remind me. Paul Morley. Paul Morley is a big, he was a big music journalist at the time. Okay. And the name does ring a bell. Yeah, yeah, he's very well known. And uh, he, Janet Street Paul had a new channel called Network 7 and it was live TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were just waiting, and I was a veteran by then and he was a print journalist. So we went on air and he was really nervous, like beads of sweat nervous. Yeah. And I said, don't worry about it. It's just a chat. We just have a chat, you know. So we sat down and went, and rolling, came out of the ad break. And the first thing he said, um, why do you wear your skirt so short? Is it to take everybody's mind off the fact that your music's crap? What? And I had a coffee in my hand and I was like, so close to oh, scoring hot black coffee. No, but that's, you know, and... and because that's just point scoring. That's just... It was horrible. And then a few years later, we lived not that far away from each other in North London, and I saw him on the street, and he, abs he sort of went like this. Yeah, of course he did. Know. I bet he did. Yeah, but um, now, if that happened to me now, I'd probably punch somebody live on camera. <laughs> but back then, I was still kind of, I don't quite know how to process this. Am I meant to react, or so I just keep calm? And he was nice you know. before. Like, so oh, before, gosh. So just Smiling as as assassin. The sm you know the smiling assassin. You know what that means. Well, I I've, I can work it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs> and uh, and they've got every intention of setting you up and making a fool of you, but they pretend to be your best friend for the sort of five minutes before you go on out or something. Because you hear about these stories, and it's mm. you know there is an old relationship, isn't there, between the press and you know yeah. acts and bands and 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 performers generally, because in a way you kind of rely on them as well mm. in terms of just getting yourself out there and all the rest of it, but. Yeah. They can also be just so vicious. I get the critiquing. I get the kind of, I don't think this is their strongest album or, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. but this was personal. It was always personal. Yeah. They used to go for me on a personal basis. Probably they get prosecuted now for bullying or something. I don't think a comment about a woman's skirt on... No, that wouldn't would, happen would, no. just wouldn't, absolutely wouldn't no, happen. No, There was another... Um, Eminem journalist who I won't bother with the names because no, 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 of course I'm not afraid to, but it's just pointless. Yeah. Just made it his mission on a weekly basis to to disembowel me in his column. He just absolutely hated me, you know. And uh, and somebody else said that, that the worst day um, ever in the history of the Melody Maker was when I was on the cover. Wow. You know, they sort of wanted to rip it up sort of stuff. It's extreme, so, isn't it? Really <laughs> extreme, very hurtful. Yeah, but I think they think that when someone's that famous, they're almost like not a person anymore, you know? Yeah. They're just like a Caricature. symbol. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. But although that's what, what surprised me about that story you told about Paul Morley, because you're face-to-face -face with the person. They can see you're a human being. Yeah. And someone's willing to just do that. He, he was... He was quite a tough journalist, though, you know, and things yeah. were different then, you know. I, I don't think he'd speak... Like no, no, probably or, not. Or, yeah. But have you ever had anything written about a criticism or a critique that you thought actually there's a point there and that's, you know, affected the, the material that you produce? Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, maybe, you know, there's been the old track on the album that I've thought that's a bit of a filler. But you just go with your instincts. And I've been caught out. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't think of anything else. I can't think of an outstanding comment. It's mm. more the personal barbs that, that yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember. I've never forgotten them, you know. But yeah, people will sort of say, you know, this track's great, that track, but this, that's, there's a couple of fillers on there. And you think, actually, maybe we should have worked a little harder on those tracks or picked a different track. Yeah. But, but really, the priority is just writing what you want to write. And yeah. then if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it, you know, it's sort of just being true to yourself as a creative person. Definitely. I, I would say I can be, I might have gotten a little bit guilty of, I could do anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know they just love everything I do and <laughs> not putting all the effort in that I should have. So, Maybe one or two tracks I listen back to them now and I don't like them, and I think I should have put more effort in or right. reworked that section or something. You know. Okay. Now I just want to ask: um, you have dabbled in acting as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, what sort of things have you done? Is that something you want to pursue? Is that something you want to go into? I would love to do a little bit more TV work. I did stage work and it was terrifying. Oh my god! Remembering a whole script. I don't know how people do Shakespeare or anything. I, I've never had such anxiety in my life because you had a West End show yeah it's called Mum's the Word with um, Kathy Tyson uh, Imogen Stubbs Patsy Palmer so big names that's quite stressful yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of pressure oh there. it was my first first stage gig as well I'm thrown into this ensemble, Jenny Claire thrown into this ensemble cast of yeah. very experienced people I said I held my own but I and I only ever dried once that's not bad going no but it's terrifying. Your mouth goes dry. Your brain empties out. It's utterly terrifying. I don't know how people learn soliloquies and stuff. Yeah. Ooh, sorry. Um, it's fascinating. You know. Um, so, but a bit of telly work I like because you can fluff your lines yeah, and start again. Yeah, of course. Again. Do it again. Um, and I haven't really done anything for years. I did a, a little cameo of myself in uh, Diane Morgan's Mandy. Yeah. Uh, just before the COVID hit, so it's 2019, yeah. and that was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So I like a little little spot in Benidorm. Yes, I saw well. the Benidorm yeah. moment. So I, I like to dip in and out, um, but I, I'm i not a serious actress, but I can certainly do bits and bobs, and I like to have a laugh, really. Yeah. you know, I'd yeah. love to. My backing vocalist, Odette, she said to me, haha, I'm a Bond girl and you're not. And she's in, um, she's an extra in Skyfall. Oh, really? So we found it. We were in the dressing room a couple of weeks ago. We found it. There's Odette walking. Daniel Craig goes straight past her. We're going, oh, she got close to Daniel Just Craig. a glimpse though, right? So Odette is a Bond girl and I'm not. I'd love to be a Bond girl. Well, I mean, it could still happen. Bond baddie. Yeah. Oh, a villain would be perfect. Stroke, be stroke my pussy. <laughs> <laughs> they could use, and definitely I would say it's a power song. Sounds like a could be a good Bond thing. Wouldn't right? that be fantastic? Makes That'd complete sense. I know. I'm not a, b a big enough star anymore, but, you know. You never know. Sure, Adele met with an unfortunate accident. <laughs> Someone else gets a show. Can be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> so what next? What, 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 what's coming up for you? Lots of work. Um, we've got, well, you mentioned the Essential uh, to Power CD. Yeah. And I've got the Essential 80s tour with Paul Young and Hue and Cry. So that goes across the UK... Uh, September, October of this year. Yeah. So um, it's easy to find, you know, just look it up on Dr. Google and if you want tickets and that sort of thing. And yeah. then um, going out to Europe to do Night of the Proms, which goes across Germany, Luxembourg and Belgium. With and that sounds brilliant with this massive, yeah, that would be amazing. And then there's always to power shows. We've got lots of festivals across the summer and um, if folks want to know what we're up to you know we've got facebook which is to power forward slash carol decker and uh, to power.co.uk is the website so you can always see where we're gigging if you want to see if um, i'm coming to a town near you yeah and twitter you're on twitter i am on twitter but i'm usually shouting about things on twitter so you might like okay so that's just a different thing yeah no i do post the gigs <laughs> actually but um i'm 
yeah, I'm a bit schizophrenic. Like a lot of my peers, they just keep it for work and they keep their narrative yeah, yeah. very. I'll just go gigs and this and this, and then COVID lockdowns, and I'll have this meltdown sort of in a, in a tweet, and then go back to and we're performing at. You know, I think so. that's sort of what social media is about, as particularly Twitter. Twitter's often about venting. Yeah, yeah it is, isn't it? And uh, usually I've had a couple of glasses of rosé. Oh, that's always. Keeps, my husband keeps hiding my phone. I think that's wise. I know. Yeah. That's the thing about social media nowadays as well. It's like celebrities. They don't have a PR person in front of them. Going, you know, exactly. Yeah. They'll just tweet it out and it's there forever because someone will screenshot it. I know, I know. And and it's not, I'd, I've never particularly said anything um, horrible about anybody, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but it's just that people disagree with you and they decide they're going to annihilate you because you've had the temerity to say something yeah. that goes against the perceived narrative, you yeah, know, that we're all supposed to adhere to these days about everything. But if people want to, know about your shows yes. that's more go to the facebook site go to facebook we have uh, dino runs our facebook he's fantastic yeah. so he's all, always up to date and then that also gets folded into the tapara.co.uk website well carol thank you so much for joining me today my pleasure thanks for having me on the show This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Carol Decker. Please do check out Carol's Facebook where you can see her upcoming performance dates and also check out her book, Heart and Soul. If you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe and do all the rest of that. Join me next week. I will have another fabulous guest. See you then.